In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we talk about how to teach the Catholic faith. We show you how to teach people you encounter, family, friends, other Christians, people of other religions, and even atheists. My name is Luke Arredondo. I am the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. Uh, And today's episode, we're going to be, well, I'm going to be talking about um, the resurrection, defending the truth of the resurrection. So this is a really important topic for the octave of Easter. I send everybody Easter greetings. I wish you the best. Um, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a, a word that we traditionally say at Easter that I want to say, but I'm recording this on Good Friday, and I, I can't pronounce the word, but uh, through the magic of technology, you should hear this word. That is what I send you uh, for, for this week of Easter. Um, we don't have a title for uh, me being on the podcast by myself yet, and uh, with all, all apologies to Dr. Ray Garendi, we, we were thinking about calling it the Doc is in, but I don't, want, I don't know if that's going to be allowed or not. So anyways, um, I, I am happy to be here today to talk about the truth of the resurrection. Every year around Easter, you can really count on national media featuring in newspapers or on news websites some kind of article uh, about, some kind of program about whether or not the resurrection really happened. Every year, like clockwork, once you get close to Easter, this is just something that happens every, that, that you can count on uh, experiencing some sort of criticism or critique about whether the resurrection was a real thing. And so we, we thought it would be good to just talk a little bit about uh, this idea of the resurrection, how, how important it is for Christians. And so that's the goal today for me, is to just walk through uh, the, the reason and that, that, that the resurrection is significant for Christians, and some of the common uh, objections to it, and some responses to that. So just to, to center it all, uh, I want to look really quickly at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, this is St. Saint, Saint Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, he has this to say, starting in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. This is really strong language from St. Paul, who is one of the earliest authors in the New Testament. The first letter to the Corinthians is one of the letters um, in the New Testament that has Paul as its author, and it's one that there's virtually no disagreement about whether or not Paul wrote it, Uh, and it's also dated earlier than any of the other Gospels. When you start looking at dating of different books of the Bible, 
there's disagreements about the dating for almost everything. One thing that scholars all agree on, though, is that the first letter to the Corinthians is one of the earliest pieces of uh, writing in the New Testament, written before any of the Gospels. And what's at the center of it is the resurrection. Paul says if the resurrection didn't happen, you're still in your sins, your faith is in vain, and you are to be the most pitied among all people. It's not a side question. For St. Paul, the resurrection stands at the very center of the claim of Christianity. And you can also see this by looking at the creeds, which express some of the, um, the basic core tenets of the Christian faith. Jesus' teaching does not feature in the creeds. It's not the center focus. Uh, who Christ is is uh, the center of it, but also what he did. So we have this line in, in the, the Nicene Creed. For our sake, he, Jesus, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So if this didn't really happen, then what St. Paul says is Christianity is a sham. There's, there's no purpose for it, uh, and we should just move on. So this resurrection event, according to scripture, means everything. Uh, and, and yet, at the same time, not everyone's willing to accept that the resurrection actually happened. And this isn't a new phenomenon either, should be noted. Uh, in fact, you even see in the Gospels themselves some evidence of skeptics of the resurrection that don't think it really happened. Uh, so the idea of this episode is to try and talk about uh, how we answer questions about whether the resurrection really happened. So first, let me just clear up uh, our terms, what we mean. Um, at the outset, we want to be very clear about what a resurrection is, what we mean by that. This is important because it's not so simple as it means Jesus died and then came back to life. Uh, and the reason that, that I say that is because there are other people in Scripture who die and then rise from the dead. Now, they don't rise from the dead by their own power, but that's a separate problem. Uh, so I'll draw you to t your attention to Lazarus, for instance. Lazarus dies, uh, and Jairus' daughter also die, and Jesus raises them back from the dead. They're, these are really, really important events. Uh, we can't dismiss them, uh, but there's a, an important key here. While Lazarus had been dead for four days and was really most sincerely dead, like in The Wizard of Oz— um, after they were restored to life, what happens to them? They die, right? They died again, which is sort of weird. Uh, you think of Lazarus' resurrection from the dead. He'd been in the tomb for four days. They even warn him, you know, Lord, he's been dead for four days. It might, it's not going to smell very good in there. Uh, but he doesn't, but of course, Jesus doesn't have to go in the tomb. He just says, Lazarus, come out. Um, but at the end of their natural, their second natural life, I guess, they died again, right? So there's a big difference between some of the other resurrections that happen in, uh, or not other resurrections, other people who come back from the dead in the Bible, the, the key difference is that they will die. But Jesus, the church insists, after rising from the dead, is not restored to life to an ordinary human life. We could call that a resuscitation, right? Jairus and Laz Jairus's daughter and Lazarus were resuscitated, even though they had been completely dead. 
uh, they were resuscitated and then were given a normal human life again. Jesus, however, uh, is raised to eternal life through the work of the Holy Trinity, and the life that he has, which he takes up after his death, will never end. Right? So there's a big difference between just coming back from the dead and Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus is resurrected. He doesn't just get to come back to life. Um, and this means, of course, that he did, in fact, die. He had a real, true death, not an apparent death. Uh, and then on the third day, with his same body, he rose again to a newness of life and to a life without end. Jesus' appearances to his disciples after the resurrection show us that Jesus' body was involved in the resurrection. Uh, this is really important he wasn't spiritually alive. It wasn't his soul. It wasn't a ghost. If you actually look carefully at the gospel narratives, uh, there is some sort of fear or doubt or concern by the 12, or I guess the 11, that, whoa, this might just be a ghost. Jesus has to calm them down and tell them that he's not a ghost, right? That's we, So we do not believe, Christ, the, the, the Catholic Church does not believe that Jesus merely had his soul restored, uh, and that he was spiritually resurrected. What the church means is that uh, he was raised bodily from the dead. He's not just alive with God in heaven. It's not some sort of spiritual or mystical thing. It was a physical, corporal reality. And you see this in the New Testament when you look at Jesus' appearances to the disciples after the resurrection. They sort of want some proof that it's really him and that it's really not a ghost, uh, he he eats with them. Uh, he will allow them to examine his wounds, and his his body in its glorified state is his true body. It bears his wounds. He has his scars, uh, but there's also something weird and new about it. The glorified body is not exactly like his physical body. So he can enter a locked door, for instance, which really scares the disciples. And he can disappear after he breaks bread with the uh, the two strangers who were on the road to Emmaus. In the breaking of the bread, they realize him, and then he vanishes, right? So there's there's something different about his body, but it's still his body. So there's a, a, a real tangible sort of quality to Jesus' resurrection. It's not just uh, a, a spiritual event. And I want to emphasize how strongly the Catechism expresses this idea. If you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Paragraph 643, uh, there, is, there is this line, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit long, but I'll, I'll read and, and comment. So it says, given all of these testimonies, and it's just referred to things like the empty tomb, the appearances of, the, of, of Jesus after his, his resurrection, it says, given all these testimonies, Christ's resurrection cannot be interpreted as something outside the physical order and it is impossible not to acknowledge it as an historical fact. So they're saying here that it's not something merely spiritual, and it is also not something that sort of goes outside of history. In other words, it's a real, actual event that actually transpired in history, and that there is a physical component to it. Uh, the Catechism goes on to say, it's clear from the facts that the disciples' faith was drastically put to the test by their master's passion and death on the cross, which he had foretold. 
And this is one of the things about the resurrection that's so fascinating. It's central. Everything hangs on it. And even his disciples, even Jesus' disciples who were with him, the twelve, they seem not to understand it. Before it happens, when he predicts that it's going to happen, they reject it, they question it. Remember Peter saying, you know, this this can never happen, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Uh, we, we just read recently in the Passion Narratives when Jesus is going to be arrested and, and, and his trial is going to happen, one of the disciples cuts the ear off of one of the guards, right, trying to stop it from happening. There's a problem, even for the disciples, of this really actually happening. And this, in a certain way, is sort of one of the proofs that it did happen, is that it wasn't easy even for his followers to accept that it happened. It was almost too much to ask. So go on with the, the, the catechism says here, the shock provoked by the passion was so great that at least some of the disciples did not at once believe in the news of the resurrection. Far from showing us a community seized by a mystical exaltation, the gospel presents us with the disciples demoralized, looking sad and frightened, for they had not believed the holy women returning from the tomb, and had regarded their words as an idle tale. When Jesus reveals himself to the eleven on Easter evening, he upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of hearts, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So what this paragraph from the Catechism is trying to sort of hint at and kind of combat is this idea that the resurrection was some sort of a spiritual or, or mystical kind of thing and not an actual event that can be verified and that was truly experienced. And part of the reason for that is if it was just this mystical sort of thing, this spiritual thing that the disciples were really inspired by Jesus and in that way they carried on his work and that was what the resurrection was, uh, then then everything uh, is 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 worthless. If that that dude that wouldn't have any real value. And the other thing is it doesn't make very good evidence, very good use of the evidence in scripture where there's confusion. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this um, as we go on. So there's this very significant reality to the resurrection that the church has proclaimed uh, from time immemorial, and you see this uh, really expressed well in this one paragraph again from the Catechism 643, number 643 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So uh, when we talk about the resurrection, then we really mean something drastically different happened. This is not what normally happens to dead people, uh, and it's it's because it's so extraordinary that we hold on to the significance of the event. If it didn't happen, then our faith, as St. Paul said, is in vain. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, St. Thomas Aquinas um, and what he has to say about the resurrection. Uh, in, in his shorter Summa, which is the Summa everyone with less patience should read, uh, Aquinas talks a little bit about the resurrection and proofs of the resurrection. And it's interesting, from Aquinas' perspective, Jesus almost gives more proof than could ever be necessary for the resurrection. Uh, that he, in, in Aquinas's view, it's like he could have simply just resurrected, made one appearance, and been, been done with it. But the way that Aquinas narrates it, it's, it's almost as if Jesus went to more trouble than he needed to 
in order to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection, that there's all of these pieces that add together for a ton of evidence uh, when we really think of it. So, for instance, he mentions the empty tomb, right? Jesus could have, for instance, resurrected and just been hanging out in the tomb when the apostles came to get him, Uh, but he leaves the tomb empty to make them start thinking and questioning what really happened. Um, If he had just been sitting there, they may have wondered if he really died, right? So the empty tomb is sort of a a proof that something really out of the ordinary happened. Uh, He also mentions the many appearances to the disciples, which we'll talk about a number of times here today. Uh, the, Jesus being so kind as to show the, the disciples his wounds, right? Like they don't want to believe that it's him until they really, really see it. Um, he didn't have to do that, right? I mean, he's already back from the dead, but he goes to that length to show them that this, no, this is me. Look at my wounds. Look at my hands. Look at my side. It's me. Um, eating with them. Right? This is one of the proofs uh, that, that Aquinas mentions, that he really is a human person still. He can, he can eat, even though he doesn't need to. Uh, he has this, <laughs> Aquinas has this weird line that, like, Jesus could eat food, but he didn't need it, so what happened after he ate it was it wasn't digested, it just went back into raw matter. Um, <laughs> I don't know how Aquinas knows that, but, uh, you know, when, when someone's written eight million words in their life and they're a doctor of the church, uh, you, you can't question everything that they say. Um, no. So anyways, he, Aquinas has this, this view that the resurrection is so important that Jesus went to all of these different steps to show how real it was. Um, he also says that Jesus did not return in the full splendor of the Son of Man, uh, who, who maybe is what Jesus will look like when we're in heaven, because if he had done that, there may have been some doubt about whether this really was Jesus. If he comes, for instance, looking like he did in uh, the Gospels when uh, he's up on the mountain with the three and he's transfigured, and if that's what he came back looking like, Aquinas says, maybe the apostles would have thought, I don't, I don't really know if this is Jesus. Uh, so he, he sort of limits his miraculous look so that we can recognize who he is. Um, so Aquinas kind of works through these three primary things about how Jesus demonstrates to, to great lengths uh, that he really did resurrect. So first he talks about the apparitions to the disciples. Jesus appears so many times to different groups of people, uh, and St. Paul mentions, for instance, at one point that Jesus appears to 500 brethren all at once, uh, and he appeared to the women at the tomb, to St. Paul himself. Seeing Jesus after he had been dead and after the tomb had been empty is one major form of proof. Uh, The second thing Aquinas says, though, is that Jesus also offered, and this is a quote from him, proofs appealing to the intellect, such as when he opened their understanding, the disciples' understanding, so that they might understand the scriptures and show that the writing of the prophets said that he was to rise again. So for Aquinas... One of the really important proofs for Jesus' resurrection is that his death and resurrection fulfills the scriptures. And by that, we, of course, mean the Old Testament. Um, so if you want to take a look at that argument, it's uh, from Aquinas' Shorter Summa, paragraph number 238. And he mentions one more thing that I, that I found interesting, and it's that Jesus stays dead for 
the right amount of time, not just because three days is important in terms of the scriptures, but that that the three-day window somehow seems to be just the right amount of dead uh, to convince people that it happened. Um, I, I think of it like this. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I have, I'm the oldest in my family. There's four, four children in my family. I have two younger brothers and a younger sister. Uh, my brother, who's closest in age to me, is about four years younger than me, and we would play video games a lot, uh, only on Super Nintendo because it's the only thing I ever owned. And I was a lot better than him mainly because I was older uh, at a lot of games. And there's a, there's a difference between just absolutely beating someone at a video game with as much passion as you possibly can, annihilating them, wiping the floor with them, you know. So you're playing basketball, beat them 100 to 0. You're playing Street Fighter, get a perfect every time. That's one way to demonstrate your power, to just demoralize your opponent. Another way, which is more impressive but takes a lot more restraint, is to let them think they're part of it and only beat them a little bit, right? I, I thought of that when I, when I was reading Aquinas' description here of Jesus being dead for just the right amount of time. You think of it. Uh, when, once Jesus dies and he's off the cross, Aquinas says, he could have immediately resurrected himself. He could have bounced back right away and said, hey, look, I rose myself from the dead. It's a miracle. And it would have been a miracle. Most people can't bring themselves back from the dead immediately after they're crucified. But Aquinas says, if Jesus had done that, there may have been some doubts about whether he even in fact died. And I think that's a really important thing to, to consider, right? Had he been resurrected sooner, it would have been a little more difficult to believe that he actually died. And you'll see this is actually one of the critiques or, or skeptic sort of arguments that you see later that we'll see later on in this episode is some people doubt whether he even died. So Aquinas already is addressing that. Uh, but then Aquinas also says if he had remained dead any longer, hope would have faded out. Aquinas says, even after just three days, many of his followers were losing hope, right? You see this on the road to Emmaus. The two disciples are walking, and, and Jesus, unbeknownst to them, but beknownst to us, comes up to them and, you know, wants to know what's wrong, and they're just completely bummed out about all the events that have just transpired. And Jesus, of course, has to show them, you don't understand what just happened. So in, in Aquinas's view, Jesus gives us a reason to believe in the resurrection, and that, and that is the timing. Right? He stayed dead long enough for us to really know that he had died, but it wasn't so long that all of the disciples lost hope and just walked away. So it's, it's a, dem a demonstration of just how much power Jesus had to lay down his life, is that he could take it up again at just the perfect time. Right, and so this 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 video game, you know, an analogy that I use, it it'd be like when I'm playing my brother in Street Fighter, and he's you know four and I'm eight, to let him almost beat me and then come back and rally and beat him with three seconds left in the round or something like that. Um, Jesus is able to do something much more impressive than uh, master Street Fighter. He can master life and death with that same amount of precision and care. Um, so. These are just a, a, a few of the uh, kind of traditional ways in which the church approaches the, the reality of the resurrection. This, this is not everything, of course, just a, a, a short introduction. 
Uh, what I want to do now is look at sort of the way people tend today to argue about whether the resurrection uh, was a real event or not. So uh, I hope that's what you want to do because it's what I'm going to do anyways. Um, this is this is a strategy that William Lane Craig uses. He's a William Lane Craig is a popular evangelical apologist, um, really, really great uh, at debating uh, atheists uh, and, and different sort of people from different backgrounds about the basics of Christianity. When he talks about the resurrection, uh, he talks about the minimal facts strategy. So he says, diehard believers in the resurrection, like myself, and skeptics who think that the resurrection may have not happened or who are just bound and determined not to accept it, regardless of what your perspective is or what your opinion is, everyone has to account for these three basic or three minimal facts. So the first fact is the empty tomb, right? Now, an empty tomb means something weird has happened. When, if someone has been buried, and then you go back to the tomb later, and there isn't a body in the tomb, that has to be explained. Um, when, I was, when I was a kid preparing for First Communion, I was uh, at, at my CCD class in second grade at Holy Rosary in Woodland, California, and the priest was, I'm sure now, explaining to us uh, the fact that Christ is present in the Eucharist and he's in the tabernacle. So he was pointing up to the altar, and he, he was telling us Jesus was in there. And uh, I understood so little about the Eucharist or what this priest was saying that I, I actually thought Jesus was buried underneath the altar at my church. And I thought not, well, that's weird. I thought Jesus was in heaven. I actually thought it was, I was seven. I thought, that is so cool. Of all of the Catholic churches in the whole world, here at Holy Rosary in Woodland, we have Jesus' body. Like, that's awesome, and I was really excited about that. Um, see, if Jesus' body was just laying around somewhere, or was it, if it was in a tomb, uh, that would be a problem, a strike against the resurrection. But there's an empty tomb, and there's no body. Nobody found a body that said, oh, this is Jesus' body. So the, the empty tomb is one of the facts that a skeptic of the resurrection has to deal with as much as someone who believes in the resurrection uh, has to sort of explain it. So whether or not you think the resurrection happened or not, there's got to be an explanation for how does the tomb get empty. So even very big skeptics of the resurrection, there's a, uh, a Bible scholar named Bart Ehrman, um, even he will admit that all of the evidence tells us that Jesus was in fact buried, he was in the tomb, for three days, and on the third day, the tomb was found empty. So whether or not you support the resurrection, there's got to be some way to explain that. Okay, so this is the first of the three minimal facts, is the empty tomb. Second, there is the post-mortem appearances, or the, the appearances of Jesus after his death. In the New Testament, and, and this is not just in the Gospels, but uh, in, in various books in the New Testament, there are multiple accounts, multiple attestations of Jesus appearing to individuals, to groups of believers, uh, and sometimes to large groups, Paul mentions 500 at once, after his death and before his ascension. 
Uh, there's nine accounts actually, and and if you check the show notes, uh, we will. I'll, I'll give you the the passages. You can look at all of them. So here again, supporters and skeptics have to explain this. Uh, Brant Petrie, who is a, a teacher of mine for many years, um, and, and author of this fantastic book, The Case for Jesus. Uh, if you if you only want to read one book uh, on sort of can we believe in Jesus. I really recommend this one. Uh, Again, Brant Petrie, The Case for Jesus. He says it this way, uh, There's no historical basis for claiming, like some people do, that there are no eyewitness accounts of the appearances of the risen Jesus. There's a whole bunch of them, right? And, And I'll list them for you in the show notes, of people who saw Jesus. Not just one person. It's a whole bunch of people at different times, different places, in individually and in groups. Brandt goes on to say, you can reject those accounts if you'd like, but you can't say that they don't exist. So again, these post-mortem appearances, which are accounted for uh, in, in multiple Gospels and in the writings of St. Paul, have to in some way be dealt with. What if it wasn't a resurrection? In other words, then what, what's with all these people saying that they saw the resurrected Jesus? And we'll see what some of the, the uh, answers are here in a second, some of the critical ways of answering that question. So the first, the first critical fact is the empty tomb. Second is the post-mortem appearances. And third is the growth of the church. So the third critical fact is the way the church spread. So this is important, um, and it goes beyond just the evidence of, of the Bible or, or what the text of the Bible is telling us. After Jesus' death and resurrection, his followers preached about the event. The preaching of St. Paul, the writing of St. Paul even, focuses uh, time and time again on the reality and the centrality of the resurrection of the Lord. This is the good news. And that's what gospel means, euangelion in Greek, good news. The news is Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered sin, he conquered death, and we can share in it, right? So the early Christian proclamation of the good news of the gospel resulted for a long time in persecution, threats of death, and in the execution and martyrdom of a large number of believers. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus' followers persisted in their mission to spread the gospel, to spread the good news, and to tell others about the Lord, and to baptize them into his death, because by doing so, the believers were being baptized into his resurrection. So, one of the minimal facts, in other words, is how is it that the church could spread like wildfire even while it was being persecuted while there was while there was such terrible danger to believe and profess and spread the gospel but yet it happened so if the resurrection happened which is what i believe it's pretty easy to understand the fervor of those followers of what was at that time called the way but if they were lying if it didn't really happen, it becomes very challenging to comprehend. How could all of these martyrs die uh, for something that they were lying about? Uh, It seems precisely that the death and the willingness to suffer 
as a witness to the resurrection is, is at the heart of the growth of Christianity in those first several decades. If that was all concocted, it's very, very difficult to imagine how that all happens, right? Uh, you could think of it as, as Christianity was going viral, right, uh, it, because it was true. Uh, it, it, it couldn't have happened on a, on, on a lie. So whether you're a supporter or a critic of the resurrection, you have to explain how that happened. And we'll, we'll look at here in a second at, at sort of how that, that works. I want to add one more. Uh, William Lane Craig and others, they, they use these three minimal facts, but I think there's one more important point. Um, and that's uh, the idea that the Scripture is being fulfilled, right? So Craig or others will say, if, if once you look at the empty tomb, the postmortem appearances, and the growth of the church, and you understand what explains those, you know, the resurrection, then it's a motive or reason for you to also believe in it. Um, but Dr. Dr. Petrie gives one more that I think is important for us to, to think about, and it's that in the New Testament, what is given as a primary reason for belief in the resurrection is that Jesus says is, is that Jesus' resurrection fulfills the scriptures. So you may, you may remember this line from the Creed, which I, which I read earlier, that Jesus died and rose on the third day in, in accordance with the scriptures or in fulfillment of the scriptures. And Jesus, on, on the road to Emmaus, helps the two uh, followers who were walking with him to understand why the resurrection happened. So he's, this is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 45. Then he, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So there's, there's a sense in which Jesus's resurrection on the third day as a fulfillment of the Old Testament is sort of another thing, uh, another motive of credibility for the resurrection. So uh, in, in the time remaining, what I'm going to try and do is look at uh, some of the skeptic arguments against the resurrection and try and just walk through how, how you might go about responding to those. Um, and, and so with, with, with doing this in not, not in any particular order, uh, we'll start with what's called the conspiracy theory, okay? And I love conspiracy theories. I once read a, a, an 1,100-page book on the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and at the, for the first, like, three or four hundred pages, I thought this guy was going to answer everything. And by the end of it, he it really was disappointing. But I, st I like conspiracy theories. So uh, it's fun to me to imagine people getting serious about this conspiracy. That's, and namely, it's this, that Jesus' disciples stole the body, and then they just pretended that Jesus had really risen from the dead. Um, so you actually see evidence of this. You don't have to wait very long. Uh, it, it seems to be basically the first theory that tries to take a, a, take a hold of the facts and explain them in such a way that Jesus didn't resurrect. And you see this in the Gospel of Matthew, actually. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verse 13, this, this argument is made. Well, it must have been the disciples. They, they broke in, stole the body, and uh, hid it, and then they, they're, they're just telling everybody Jesus resurrected from the dead, but, you know, he really didn't. Um, so this is, this is a simple 
uh, theory, uh, and, and in that it explains how you could have an empty tomb. It, it solves that problem. Well, the, the empty tomb's not, not a motive of credibility for the resurrection. It was just a scam. Uh, however, if the disciples had stolen the body, that doesn't account very well for post-mortem appearances of Jesus, right? So it, it does handle the first minimal fact of there's an empty tomb, but what about all the people that saw Jesus later on? Uh, unless we're talking about like a weekend at Bernie situation uh, where they're dragging Jesus' body around and pretending to appear to people, stealing the body doesn't account for it. How could Jesus appear in different times and places to all these different people uh, if, in fact, he had just died and then the apostles stole his body? Uh, but the other thing is this conspiracy of, well, the disciples stole the body— it does not explain in, in any real satisfactory way how the church sprang into being and exploded into the world in the decades after Jesus's fake resurrection, right? Uh, so, so many of the disciples, uh, well, all of them experienced terrible deaths, uh, and Christians were, you know, suffering horrible abuses uh, for, for what? For, for a conspiracy? And, and if it's a conspiracy, think through it this way. If... They, if the disciples stole the body, Jesus just died like everybody else does, and that was it. Um, why make up the story in the way that they did? In other words, if you were going to steal Jesus' body and pretend that he resurrected, and then write gospel accounts to describe it, it wouldn't seem the best move to write your accounts in such a way that the disciples were confused about what happened. Right? They didn't know. They wouldn't believe. It also, it really doesn't make very much uh, sense to give in these accounts in the Gospels, and this happens in all four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first witnesses to the resurrection are women. And in the culture and climate of the day, women were not considered credible witnesses. So you, if you are going to create a conspiracy you're going to break in and steal the body. It's a bizarre move to then later tell the story that it was women that first saw uh, Jesus' tomb empty. Uh, and then they went to go tell the disciples about the empty tomb. And what is the reaction? Well, look at Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. Uh, and this this is this is the quote, so you don't you don't have to look it up. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told this to the apostles, namely that the tomb was empty. But these words seemed to them, to the disciples, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home wondering at what had happened. So if, on the conspiracy account, the disciples do go and steal the, the, the body out of the tomb, uh, well, they then craft this crackerjack story about how it happened, where women who were unreliable witnesses are the first women are the first uh, witnesses. Then they go tell the apostles who think it's just, like, nonsense. But Peter, maybe just out of curiosity, goes to look, looks in the tomb, and goes home wondering what had happened. 
it's a it's a very sort of strange thing to to argue, um, and m- maybe for that reason there aren't a whole lot of people that, that that make the argument today. But it did have a certain life, and and you may still find people that that say, well, this whole thing uh, was a hoax. And and honestly, I care too little about Dan Brown to have read any of his books. But maybe this is a Dan Brown sort of thing. Um, in any case. That's one, a conspiracy theory, you know, uh, that, that explains away the empty tomb but does really nothing to get at the other minimal facts. The second uh, theory we could look at is, is something called the, the apparent death or, or the swoon theory. Uh, and, and this idea is that Jesus, okay, he was on the cross, but he didn't really die. Uh, he just fainted, he went unconscious, and then is taken down, he's placed in the tomb, and later, uh, he escapes before anybody comes to see him. Uh, and there's actually uh, a bit of a, a his- historical sort of way in which the, the Quran interprets the crucifixion in this sort of way, that, that namely that Jesus didn't actually die. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different ways that Muslims will interpret. There's a verse from the Quran saying that Jesus, essentially that, you know, Jesus wasn't really crucified. It seemed that way. Um, different, different wide range of opinions about what what exactly that means, but so the, the, this idea though his has had a certain uh, staying power that Jesus didn't actually die there. He was just you know he was like a really good actor. Um, he won an Academy Award, and I suppose that's possible. Uh, but there's there's a lot of incredulity with that that argument. Um, I mean, for instance, imagine going through an entire crucifixion. You know, being there, hanging for hours, being and and before that, the 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 beating that he that he endured, then carrying the cross, going through all of of a traditional Roman crucifixion, and somehow not dying, would would be a sort of a miracle, be pretty pretty amazing, but the problem with it is beyond how difficult it would be to endure all of that suffering and not die. There's this important historical fact that uh, the Roman soldiers who were overseeing crucifixions, they would be killed if they did not ensure that the criminal they were punishing in fact died. So they have a death penalty if they don't kill someone. And this is why in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 31, you see the soldiers discussing it breaking Jesus's legs they're going to break his his legs to ensure that he dies it's a, it's sort of an, an insurance policy on their own life we want to really make sure that this guy is is dead we don't want to be fooled here um so on the one hand there's there's a lot of motivation for the Roman soldiers to not allow someone to just pass out and pretend to be dead uh, the other thing is, even if that you get through that problem, Jesus fools them, loses consciousness, uh, and they just assume that he's dead, he'd be in pretty rough condition, uh, and it'd be very difficult to imagine just a human being surviving that, then rolling a stone away and evading another group of Roman soldiers, right? Um, now, of course, if Jesus is in fact God— Rolling a stone away is no big deal, but the whole point of this theory is, yeah, it, Jesus didn't really die, right? He was just a human person. He got beat up real bad. He passed out. They buried him in a tomb, and then he escaped. 
pretty tough to believe. Uh, and it, it's, again, involves the Roman soldiers. And go, go back to the conspiracy theory above. If the disciples were to steal the body, they've got to get past a group of Roman soldiers who are guarding the tomb, right? And they have very strict punishments in the Roman Empire uh, for, you know, allowing something like that to happen. I mean, this is not just a random person. This is someone who was high, being highly guarded. So the swoon theory is that Jesus just pretends to die, and then he uh, sort of escapes on his own somehow, all right? And there's, these are the, the, the issues with it, as, as I mentioned, uh, that it would just be difficult for that to ever even really happen. It's, it requires you to, to make a lot of leaps. Um, all right, hallucinations. This is another way that people tend to approach the resurrection in a way that rejects it. So when you look at uh, the apparitions of Jesus after his death, uh, there are some skeptics that really focus on that. Right, so, so you can take some arguments like the conspiracy theory and say that explains the empty tomb. Maybe it does, still seems strange to me, but even if you move past the empty tomb, the body was just stolen, okay, what about the post-mortem appearances? Um, Jesus' death in the Gospels is described as somewhat different. You know, he's he's sort of recognizable, but not always. Uh, so on, on the road to Emmaus, you know, he can, he can vanish uh, and disappear when he wants to and, and reappear. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene mistakes Jesus for a gardener. Uh, but Jesus also shows his wounds in his hands and his side to help convince Thomas the Apostle that this, this is Jesus, this is him, this is not somebody else, not a ghost. Um, the, the hallucination theory then has a difficulty in this, and this is the, the, the primary thing. If Jesus appears to all these different individuals, uh, how do all of them, or rather, if Jesus does not actually appear to all these individuals, how is it that so many of them are having these hallucinations? Hallucinations normally are an individual thing. If a large number of people at different times and in different places have the same or similar hallucination, I don't know that you could call that a hallucination. That that sounds like something different. Uh, and to me, uh, it, it makes more sense that this really actually happened. There were appearances. Uh, hallucination, just by, by definition, doesn't, doesn't work that way. So these are, these are just three ways in which people tend to reject the, uh, the resurrection. And one of the, the big things that underlies all of them is a, a sort of approach to uh, the reliability of the Gospels and the reliability of the New Testament itself. Uh, there is tremendous uh, scholarship on uh, the, the genre of the Gospels as biographies um, and the importance and role of eyewitness accounts, in, especially in the Gospels. Uh, Luke, for instance, tells us he, he sought out eyewitness accounts. And I think that's sort of a separate—I mean, that'd be like a separate issue, a separate podcast altogether, talking about the, the historical reliability of the Gospels. But that's one important element to it that I, that I don't want to forget to mention here, is that we have so much confidence in, in believing the accounts that we have in the Gospels in terms of how many copies of them are around, how early they are, uh, the authorship of them being identified clearly early, uh, the, the, different sh the structure of them being consonant with Greco-Roman biographies, I mean, biographies are 
telling life stories and they're not making up things. Uh, the way that there are historical details thrown into the Gospels is not the kind of thing that you would see when you're telling myths or stories, right? So Star Wars, for instance, starts a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Although it was originally going to start as a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, and I'm very glad that they changed it. Um, but that's how Star Wars starts, right? There's when basically there there is no time. It's a long time ago, and we're a galaxy far, far away. You compare that to the Gospels that are giving you the the names of the rulers of of different uh, the different political rulers, uh, and and you so when you have a name and place, you can you can tie that to time. It's it is they are biographical accounts. Uh, and maybe I'll do an, another episode on, on that. Um, this is something that uh, I think would, would be really interesting. So I did want to mention just uh, one, one more sort of uh, critical response here. And this this is the way that Jesus' resurrection fulfills the scriptures, okay? So when you take the three basic facts or the three minimal facts, the empty tomb, the postmortem appearances, and the growth of the church— when you understand those in light of the resurrection, it becomes very appealing to believe in the resurrection, and that's good. Uh, and and I think it's difficult to account for all three of those things in a, such a way that the resurrection is proven to be the least likely or least probable thing. The resurrection is weird. It's not like this happens all the time, uh, uh, but I think it makes the best sense of those things. There's But this element of fulfilling the scriptures uh, is what, when you're looking within the language or within the lens of the New Testament, it's the way that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies that gives the strongest rationale for believing in the gospel. And this is something, again, that I'm just just taking from, from Dr. Petrie, uh, and I hope he doesn't mind. Uh, again, The Case for Jesus, excellent book. I make no money off the sale of this, but it's, it's fantastic. Um, in, so in there, he says, this is something contemporary arguments about the resurrection tend to forget. They, he, he mentions the three things, the empty tomb, post-mortem appearances, and, you know, the martyrdom of the church, the growth of the church. He says, yeah, everybody talks about those, but nobody talks about the fact that in the New Testament itself, it says that Jesus' resurrection is in accordance with the Scriptures. So what does that mean? Well, when you're writing Scriptures like St. Paul was, writing a letter to the Corinthians in the year 56 or thereabouts, A.D., um, what was Scripture? It was the Old Testament, right? There wasn't a New Testament laying around. Scripture was the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So according to, to Dr. Petrie, uh, when Jesus speaks about his res- resurrection on the third day, there's only one passage from the Jewish Scriptures that he refers to to tie this third day thing together, and that's the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah. So the, scri- the, the scribes and Pharisees ask Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew for a sign so that they can believe in him. So, some, so work some miracles, show, some, show us, demonstrate who you are. They want him to prove who he is. And Jesus' reply is that this generation will only receive one sign, and that's the sign of Jonah. So if you remember your children's Bible, right, Jonah was swallowed by a a whale or a big fish. He's in the belly of the whale or the fish for three days and then finally realizes that, okay, he should accept God's mission that he has for him to go to Nineveh and and, and preach and, and convert people. Um, as Dr. Petrie shows, though, this sign is what Jesus is, is talking about when he says, I'm going to give you a sign of who I am. It's the sign of Jonah. What, is, what does he mean by that? 
Well, in Jonah, when he is in the whale or the fish or whatever it is, he uh, there there's a prayer recorded, okay? And the prayer of Jonah mentions Jonah himself being in Sheol, which is the Jewish term for the realm of the dead, right? You don't you, it can't be in Sheol unless you're dead, right? So he's in Sheol, he he asks God to reclaim his life from the pit. And he says his soul has fainted, which is, which is a way of saying that he has died. So there is, in the story of Jonah, a death. Jonah is dead. He's not just in the whale for three days, but if you read it carefully, he's dead for these three days. Well, then what happens at the end of Jonah's story, right? Well, he's vomited out of the whale or the fish, and... After that, he is not dead. He's alive, okay? So this is a a resurrection of sorts, or if we want to use the real careful language I tried to develop earlier, a resuscitation. That's one part of Jonah's sign, of the sign of Jonah, is someone being dead for three days, going down into the realm of the dead, and then coming back to life. But that's... That's really, in a certain sort of way, not the most important part of Jonah's story, uh, at least as, as Dr. Petrie reads it. And I have no reason to disagree with him since he was my teacher for so long, and he's such an esteemed scholar. Uh, no, So what he says is the, the bigger part of Jonah's story is not that he survives the whale, but that he escapes, is alive, and then is able to convert Nineveh. The king of Nineveh, not a believer— but after the miracle of Jonah's surviving death and his preaching, even the king puts on sack and, ash, and ashes, and uh, they convert, sackcloth and ashes, and, and everyone converts. And so the way that, that Dr. Petrie reads this story, and, and I'm sharing it with you just because I thought it was so, so powerful, is the sign of Jonah, what makes Jesus' resurrection in accordance with the scriptures, is Jesus' resurrection and the conversion of the world. And this is what happens. So this is another way of saying that the three minimal facts, the empty tomb, post-mortem resurrection, and the growth of the church, those that growth of the church thing is really tied to the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilling in an, in an extraordinary way, in a superabundant way, Jonah's conversion of the kingdom of Nineveh, right? After Christ's death, you have pagan uh, kingdoms just falling into Christianity in a sort of inexplicable way. And what Dr. Petrie tries to show in this in, in the chapter on the resurrection in this book is that this conversion is not merely a historical thing, like, wow, look, even if you forget about the Bible, uh, it, you know, which talks about the, the empty tomb and the, the post-mortem appearances, forget about the Bible and just look at history, the way the world converted to Christianity. Actually, that's tied up into the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures, as we said in the Creed, refers to both the resurrection on the third day, like Jonah, although Jesus is not just res- resuscitated, but he is resurrected to eternal life, and also the conversion of the world that happens thereafter. So, um, yeah, I think essentially this just gives us a few things to think about. I do want to say 
um, that if you should, if you're interested in in learning more about this topic, definitely check out the show notes. I'll give you um, all of the different scripture passages referring to the post the the resurrection accounts, the post resurrection appearances of uh, of Jesus to the different followers. Uh, um, and also, I will give you a list of just a few books be- besides um, Dr. Petrie's book, which which I think is excellent. Some some other ones that I that I would recommend. Um, and finally, I want to say uh, that I'm I'm really excited that I was able to get through a whole podcast, even though I'm going to ruin it right now, without a Sheen reference. Uh, we have a little joke going here about how often I talk about Fulton Sheen, and I didn't read any Fulton Sheen books to prepare for this because uh, mostly I didn't have time. Uh, but that's so just just a, a personal thing. All right, so uh, it's time for our Into the Chariot moment where we try and give you some advice about how to put all of this into practice. Uh, If I could give you one thing to do, I would say look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, the section on the resurrection. It's only a few pages, uh, but it gives a sort of a brief outline of some of these same topics and ideas that we were talking about here. If you're only going to do one thing, I'd say go do that. Uh, But if you want more, definitely take a look at the show notes, as I said. I'll give you plenty of other resources that you can look at. Uh, please uh, follow us on, on YouTube, on our website, the stphilipinstitute.org. It's stphilipinstitute.org. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. You can find our podcast on Spotify and on iTunes. Please leave a review. Uh, and and if, if you didn't like it, uh, just pretend like you did, because uh, the other people have much better shows than I do. Uh, and we look forward to any questions you might have. If, if you have something you want us to do an episode on, send us an email. Uh, the address is podcast at stphilipinstitute.org. Uh, and thanks for, for, for your time today. I know we'll close with an apostolic blessing from Bishop Strickland. The Lord be with you, and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.